This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Somewhere there's like a red dot or something showing that we're recording. See it? Oh, there. I see it. Okay. It took me a while to find it. Today we're going to talk about how to select land. So, um, or something like that, you know, quest for land. So you're, so, so basically I'm on the phone here with Kyle and Mark, and they have both listened to either all of my podcasts or damn near, right? That's right. Yes. Okay. All right. And, um, uh, I think we were recording a podcast, uh, as part of the um, the Sepulcher stuff or the Permaculture Smackdown stuff, mm-hmm. Kyle came up with this idea. Let's 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 travel in this path because apparently I haven't covered this in a podcast. And so while we were preparing for it, it turned out that there's other stuff that I haven't covered in a previous podcast either, which I think is super important stuff along these lines because the mission is is like, all right, you're going to make the leap onto land. And as Kyle put it a moment ago, like, I want to know all this stuff so I don't get there and then end up having to move. Because, of course, permaculture is a rather perennial thing. Now, uh, I did write a three-part series. um, I don't know what this must have been, six years ago, seven years ago, something like that. And I shared it... um, with everybody on the dailyish, like hey, everybody on the dailyish, uh, look at what I wrote, you know, and uh, uh, there it is. And so um, I don't know if people have ever looked at it ever since. <laughs> but when Kyle asked this, I I pointed this pointed it out, and so Kyle, this is the first you've seen of it. Is when I pointed it out like a couple weeks ago or so. Yes. Okay. And yeah, there's a it was a three part. Um, series on uh, yeah on exactly what we're talking about now. Yeah. Okay. Cool. To start all this off, um, there's this very important thing. All people who live in the country are divided into three groups, and and I gotta say that this is a great big steaming pile of my opinion, and which is kind of <laughs> what's being asked for. So. Um, forgive my arrogance as I leap into this. These three groups of people are about the same size. Um, group one, people are happy. They're at least authentically happy or feigning happiness to me. Um, and uh, that means that they get along awesome with all of their neighbors. And uh, they're not getting any trouble from their regional government stuff. And so they're doing everything that they want to do, and it's not like they've got people saying you can't do that. 
So um, I believe that within this group of happy people, I'm going to believe maybe a quarter of them or a third of them are authentically through and through happy. And I've been to places where, wow, what a tight-knit, beautiful and wonderful community. It can exist. It, it, it is out there. So um, it, is, it is possible. Second group, same size as the first, same size as the third. Second group, unhappy, um, psychotic neighbor. Uh, um, uh, I, Mike Ayler had, I mean, I, I've heard probably a thousand different hostile, horrible stories, but just as an example, Mike Ayler did not get along with his neighbor. His neighbor owned land uphill of him. They feuded so much that the neighbor went to uh, the local town, Bonner's Ferry, and apparently um, uh, got one of uh, bought one of those um, RV waste sites where you empty your your blue RV liquid of all the poop and urine and all that, uh-huh. and. Uh, bought one of those and then proceeded to take what he extracted from that and dumped it on the fence line between his property and Mike's property. And uh, uh, did, did that for so many years that the water for the whole neighborhood became undrinkable. Wow. So now everybody in the neighborhood now has to go and and import drinking water. Um, did I say a thousand stories? That's just a thousand stories that people have told me one-on-one. And in this respect, it sort of sucks to be me because these are really depressing stories. And uh, right. sometimes it's a, it's a neighbor who intentionally is very loud just to piss you off uh, and in all kinds of different ways. Um, sometimes it has to do with the neighbor's dog eating your animals, killing your animals and eating them, and the neighbor saying, no, they didn't. They've been locked up over here all day, and it's like, well, I've got pictures, and it's like your pictures are fake. Um those kinds of neighbors. Then, of course, we're all familiar with the Department of Making You Sad. And, and I got to, whenever I say that, I should be saying, you know what? There's a lot of people that work as regulators that I've met that have been terrific. And I've heard a lot of stories from people trying to work with regulators, and the regulators are bending over backwards to try and help them out. Um, and at the same time, we do know of the stories that are not that way. And mm-hmm. I've been, and, and a lot of the stories I hear, like I go to present somewhere and then people are like, can I talk to you after the class? And okay. And, and I hear the stories and it's like they try to do a thing and then like grow a garden. No, that's not allowed in this county. You got to be kidding me. Just growing a garden? And it turns out some places it's not allowed. So, um, and, and it's kind of yeah, like evidence and restrictions can vary a lot based on where you're at. Uh, the stories 
are painful and massive, and they go, and so it's like uh, it goes on and on and on. Group one, happy. Group two, unhappy. Group three, universally used to belong to group two. And they moved. And they, they selected a place where these kinds of problems are minimized, or more specifically, the problems that they were experiencing are minimized. Typically, they seek property that's at the end of a road or a property where everything on their property is not visible by their neighbors or by others. And, um, and on top of that, these people tend to choose to not develop relationships within 10, sometimes 20 miles of their home. So that way, they'll be left alone and they can have peace. I mean, isn't that what a lot of us are seeking? Now, granted, we all want group one. That's what we want. We want to have magnificent neighbors and with no problems from the government. And we want everything to be silky smooth all the time. We want it to be just amazing. Um, when I moved on to Mount Spokane... I contacted all of my neighbors and invited them over to my place for a big potluck. It ignited uh, old feuds that I never knew existed until... <laughs> I mean, I just arrived. I didn't know about these old feuds. And I got to learn way... I mean, I met some good people. But for every good person, there was probably three that was kind of like fucking nuts. And so... Um, and then everyone, everyone, sorry, I, uh, there was a gal in the neighborhood who seemed to have bad things to say about everybody. And it turns out she had a bit of a, and she worked as a professional in town. And so you're thinking like, oh, she's an upstanding citizen and everything. And it, and it turns out she's just poisoned through and through. But not only that, she has a bit of a problem with the pharmaceuticals. Her problem with the pharmaceuticals is so powerful that she sneaks into everybody everybody's house on the road to steal their pharmaceuticals. Wow. And uh, and she gets caught and she's just, you know, tries to brush it off as if it's nothing. So then there's a guy who has horses but they're standing around in their own shit and and he has not called a farrier. So they've got like those hooves that kind of curve up. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Oh, uh, that's, yeah, it's horrible. There's, there's channels, you know, farriers have YouTube channels that you can watch. And some of these are really, really rough. They're just ignored for way too long. And that's the guy that calls the department of making you sad three times a week for all the neighbors, turning them in for whatever. Whatever he can think of. And so, How's that saying go? The defense is a good offense? Or, keep, keep I don't know. They don't see what you're doing. <laughs> Some, somehow you got to work in boredom on this. I mean, what's what, what the hell is wrong with this guy? How bored do you have to be? So, um... Ah, uh, it's... Uh, the thing is, is, is nobody was calling the department and making you sad for on this guy because 
they had their own lives to live, and they were they're trying to do their own things. But suddenly, here come all this here comes all this other stuff, you know. So all I'm saying yeah. is that um, there's three groups, and and so I I thought it was. So, so I think it's important. I think there's a lot of people. We've got to have respect for this because in a lot of ways, I'm trying to do that where I am now. Part three, group three, live at the end of a road and just keep to myself and not develop a lot of relationships within 10 or 20 miles. And and it's like instead, uh, I, I, I love Missoula, Montana. I love Missoula. I love to develop relationships in Missoula. Um, and, and so Missoula is a wonderful community. But even more than that, I have, there's a whole lot of people that are here now. I think there's 15 of us that are here on my property right now. So we have our own little community. We have lots of community right here, right now. So, yeah. um, I kind of feel like, uh, uh, our community needs are being met um, as is. Now, granted, when I was down in Mount Spokane and I got to know some people, um, developing those relationships makes it so it's so much easier to live in the country when you develop those relationships with the good people. Because the good people are like, uh, like when, when I, I had these two old tractors and um, uh, some people wanted to borrow the tractors, and they were really good mechanics, and so they would get these tractors working and then use them and return them in better shape than they borrowed them. And it's like uh, there were a lot of great relationships, but it's like in the end, the downsides were like four times more than the upsides. Uh, so um, so that's a, that's an element when, when to think about when looking for land um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, whenever I mention this stuff and people have not bought their land yet, then they are certain that they're going to be in the first group. They're going to pick a place where everybody is wonderful. All their neighbors are fantastic. Everything is great. And of course, um, we're going to get into this in a little bit. But there's also something to be said for, well, what is, if, you, if you're going to go into this area and you're going to go get some acres, what's the price per acre in this neighborhood where everybody is wonderful and the government is, is decent? You guys want to make an estimate? Go ahead. <laughs> well, it, yeah, depending on the, the size that you're you're looking at, right? The cost per acre tends to go up the fewer acres you're dealing with. But if you're talking about agricultural land and you know versus sloped land, and I think it also depends too on what your goals are. When you talk oh. about people group one, right, and being oh. happy, well, how are you going to be happy? And like with neighbors, there's it's I think pretty rare. Unless your neighbors each have a thousand acres and you only have three or four neighbors, um, that you're always going to run into the crazy one, right? Or just somebody oh. who, who is, who is going to be, um, diametrically opposed. Is that the right word? Diametrically, um, that, are the sort of the complete opposite of you personality wise, that it doesn't matter what you're doing, the two of you just aren't going to get along. 
And then, so you get enough people around you, you're eventually going to run into that individual. And unfortunately, if that individual doesn't have anything better to do, then they, that could be their, their form of entertainment. You talk about like, what, how's this guy, you know, calling up the, um, department and making you sad on all of his neighbors all the time. It's like, well, that, that could be a person's form of entertainment. Uh, instead of watching TV, they just like to harass other people. <laughs> In whatever form it is, in this so, case, you know, calling the codes department. I'm going to say that if if you go to if, if if you're Group A and it's authentic, everything is everything is dreamy and smooth. The people in the area are just terrific. What a lovely group, um, and uh, uh, it's paradise. I think you're looking at ten to twenty thousand dollars per acre, for like ten to eighty acres, something like that. I think that um, when you get to some place where the neighbors are generally more problematic, the price per acre is going to go down a lot because because the people are trying to get out of there. They're like, I'm trying to move. And there's a lot of different people that are trying to leave that area. And it's still there, Paul. Um, oh. I'm I'm still I, I hear you, Mike. Okay, all right. So I'm I'm going to say that um, here in Montana, it's like yeah, you can get land that's a thousand dollars an acre, and we'll talk about that. But I think one of the things that brings the price way down is going to be that it's it's kind of it's it's more likely to be group two, and um, and so if you wanna if you wanna try and get that to work, you probably should be looking at group three strategies. Um, yeah, and then uh, I mean, if you've got the money for it. Then, then by all means, uh, take a look at, um, a group one. Now at the same time, I have seen land where it's like, okay, here's, here's a plot of land and it's 20 acres and it comes with a three bedroom house. And, um, you know, and I, I would estimate that it's worth, uh, $250,000, but the guy's trying to sell it for 750 and it's been on the market for, uh, seven years, you know, yeah. it's kind of like, and I think his policy is, is that he really doesn't want to sell the land, but if somebody came along and offered him 750, he'd, he'd take it. And, uh, and at the same time, oh, this is, this is an important one. Um, I remember when I lived on Mount Spokane, there was a, a property at the base of the road, and I think it was like 60 acres, and it had a homestead and a bunch of outbuildings and stuff like that. And a lot of times when you're going to go and buy rural land, you cannot you cannot get a bank to carry it. You cannot get a mortgage. And so yeah. owner financing is pretty common. And the normal thing that you do is, is it's going to be one-third down, and then, um, you know, a normal, you know, interest rate as if it was a bank. So something on the order of like 5%. And, uh, so, so this guy sold the property 
and the people paid one-third down, and they made their mortgage payments for a while. And then, and then something happened, like living out in the country, that turns out they couldn't pull it off. And so um, he foreclosed. He got it back. And apparently he sold this same property that way six times. Wow. <laughs> what a, you know, and I, I, and apparently, I mean, this, the lesson here is, is like, if you're going to go buying property, you better be careful of this kind of thing. And on top of that, you know, maybe, maybe don't do a mortgage because if you're going to do a mortgage, part of it is the whole concept of like, now you got to go get a worky job and keep mm-hmm. working that worky job to pay the mortgage. And so, um, yeah. that's a, that's a, that could be a dangerous thing, especially if you're in group one and the cost of that property was like $3 million. Right. You know, it's like, oh shit. Okay. Yeah. That are, one of your goals is to make money on the property. And particularly if you're, if you're not already making money that way. True. Then, well, I'm gonna, you know, raise sheep or cattle and and make my money to pay the bills that way. And it's like, yeah, that can be a tough way to learn, well, the hard way usually. Uh, that it's, you know, like you said, either purchase it up front or have some other way to make money. But um, on NPR yesterday, they had the agriculture secretary on, and he mentioned it. I think the number was. It was either 86.9 or 89.6% of all farmers um, do not make most of their money by farming, that they have another job or some other source of income that actually paid the bills, that it's a little over 10% of farmers can actually make their living as farmers and not need to do something else. So when somebody goes to buy a property and their, their plan is, well, I'm going to you know, pay all my bills by what I grow on that land or raise on that land, that that can be very difficult. I, I, uh, I agree. And I think uh, I, uh, there was a fascinating story, which I hope I put into a podcast years and years ago um, about a couple that were all about everything organic. And they moved to an area where the big regional crop was, cherries and so they bought a cherry orchard and they they were they arrived saying we are going to do strictly organic because these are our values these are our standards and then they found themselves like six years later and he couldn't do it um i mean the wife kind of was partially involved but it was mostly the guy mostly the husband he was like he tried and tried and tried. So basically, it's like they they did something similar. In order to be able to get by, they're kind of like they they went conventional, and so they're spraying and stuff. And the thing is, is that a lot of money passed through their fingers, but at the end of the year, they went into the red every year. And so it's like you know, you you get all your cherries, and then you you get to the the warehouse. 
and that's when you find out how much money you're going to get paid for all your cherries. And then they take your cherries, and then they 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 save them, and they do this, and they do that, and whatever. And then, so they paid you money for the cherries, and then they took money out of that for doing all the things that they do to sell your cherries. And for half the people, they ended up like like that transaction alone was in the negative. Like the the, yeah. the the amount being paid for the cherries was small, and then the amount being paid for them to do all the things that they have to do to sell the cherries was high, and was bigger than the amount that they'd get paid for the cherries. So it was like they owed money. They delivered cherries, and because they delivered cherries, they now owed money to that organization. And so, not so. My impression was is that the wife had a job, which is basically paying for the husband to make a go out of conventional cherry orcharding. So it's it's like, uh, and and that's a very common story. I hear that a lot, like with wheat. You drop off your wheat and you get paid this small amount and they store your wheat. And then the first wheat they sell is for their friends or for themselves. Your wheat just sits in the silos and then you pay rent on that silo until your wheat is sold. Wow. And so it's like uh, uh, some people are making money and some people are not. And and I think this is a great time to mention, I, I love what Joel Salatin says about those people have an unfair advantage. And what you really need to do is create your own unfair advantage. All right. <sighs> yes. I think that, uh, and I, I kind of feel like it comes back to mortgage-free, where mortgage-free, the, the thing is, is you got to buy the land outright. No, no mortgage. You know? You gotta, yeah. if you don't have enough to buy the land outright, you keep, you keep living humbly until you have it. And then, and then you buy the land outright. Not, you know, don't do the mortgage thing. None of that. So, alright. Okay. Kyle, you now have the steering wheel. This was your idea to have this podcast. And I can't remember what I have and have not talked about in past podcasts. So okay. you, you have the steering wheel. Where are we, what are we talking about now? Um, so I've got some notes from your um, from your articles, and I just kind of uh, made an outline of them. I think we just start at the beginning and uh, go through that, and then we could go to my specific um, situation after that. Okay. So the um, first thing is how many acres? The first thing you talk about is how many acres. And um, you start your calculation with um, with having a herd of cows. Right. So with a small herd of cows, I think it was five, you calculated that you'll need 80 acres. True. That is That is true. So then... I think it's fair to say, do you like beef? Do you like dairy? Things of that nature. Is that going to be part of your diet? Is that going to be part of what you're doing? 
is is um, cattle. And so I also feel like it's 80 acres in the kind of climate where I want to live, so a colder climate. Um, I mean, I think that, that that's another I'm sure in, in past podcasts I've talked about when I go to select land, I want forested slope. I do not want yeah. flat. And yeah. I want a colder climate so I can build the soil. So, okay. um, all right. So if I'm going to be in this colder climate with slope and I'm going to want to at least have the option to have cattle someday, then the right. bare minimum is 80 acres. Now, okay. you're, you're reading that. Both of you have... I'm guessing read this and understood it. This is a great time yeah. to contest to contest my math. Well, your 80 acres is including that you're going to be growing hay that you'll bale and store for winter feeding. And maybe you're slaughtering one of those cows each year and you know butchering it for, for your meat needs for the year. And if you're going to get Two or three hundred pounds of meat of various cuts from one of those animals. I'm I'm saying that if you like raising one cow is inappropriate, and the, right, min, right. And the minimum grouping is five. And so, if you're going to travel this path, and then this is without importing hay. I mean, um, that can be very problematic. If you're going to buy your hay, then, you know, that, that opens the door for a lot of problems. So then you want to be self-sustaining, then, then, uh, then you're going to do that part yourself. And then, I mean, that opens up a lot of different doors on how you go about it. Are you going to, are you going to bail it or not? And things of that nature. Right. And I have to get hardware, you know, machinery. To do that, you know, unless somebody's going to be out there with uh, super strong arms and a side, you know. <laughs> well, and and uh, and that's a that is a way that's done. I'm I lean more in the general direction of uh, going hayless, and um, and so in which case, if you're transitioning towards hayless, maybe you're going to have. Um, still some hay, enough hay for just a few months out of the winter instead of six. Um, you know, paths like that. But I, I, the thing is, is that it's like, okay, if you're going to do beef and or dairy, um, or you want to at least have that option, then, then it's 80 acres. Now, Kyle... Yes. My memory is is that you're not a beef-eating kind of guy. I'm not, no. So, I'm, uh, I guess we're getting at that I am a vegan. And I, uh, we had, you, you've talked before about, and I, I understand the concept that, um, that vegans would do well to have um, ruminants rotationally grazing on their land. And... Um, I'm inclined to agree with that, but if you want, do you want to talk about that for a minute? Well, I would think that what would be a great fit for a vegan is to 
um, I mean, I, I, I kind of feel like, hmm, all right, I got, I've got like 170 things rolling around my head at once. Uh-huh. I think community. I want, I want there to be 200 acres and I want there to be, you know, like at least eight families on that plot. And maybe, uh, one or two of those families will be vegan. And then other families, one of the families will keep some cattle and they'll move the cattle around the, the, the whole plot, the whole property. Um, and then I think that the vegans would benefit from that even if they're not going to partake in, in that, uh, in the beef or the dairy. Um, and we, there's also vegetarians and there's all kinds of different dietary choices. And I think another right. thing to keep in mind is that people's dietary choices tend to change throughout their lives um, for reasons. All that said, I kind of, I kind of feel like uh, that's, that's where I'm going is, I would choose to move towards community. I think that's the smart play. Like, like even if we're going to, if we're going to talk about gertitude, I believe that Gert is like, she's got her two and a half acres in the middle of a shared property thing. That's, yeah. that's what I think. But, you know, for a lot of people that are listening to this, they're thinking to themselves, like, no, no, I'm looking for property that's just for me and mine and not a bunch of other people. And it's like, okay, that's, I think that's what this podcast is for, right? Not, like, like for people that are looking for their land, but not community, for their own, their own thing. Is that, am I right on that? No. Um, I would like... Our our kind of general plan is to have our land and then our community that follows that kind of, um, in a way, mirroring what you have going on, whereas I have, you know, what you have going on is you have these, uh, your ethics and your goals, and you know that it will take community so you went ahead and bought the land, and you're attracting people that want to live your style of community instead of trying to go out and find your specific style of community. Right. So ours is pretty similar to yours. Um, uh, our, you know, our ethics and goals and, and, and uh, needs and wants but um, not exactly aligned with yours. So we're trying to find, if we can, a, a larger plot um, and invite people that share our specific ethics and needs and wants and um, aesthetic and, and all those things to come live on it afterwards. But, um, yeah. So exactly the same, but two steps to the left. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Understood. Understood. All right. Two states to the left. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. There's that too. So slightly different. Would you say that you were talking about the, you know, raising ruminants on that land, um, even though you're vegan, would it be an option of where, say, you find someone else who wants to have those cattle, but they could 
um, keep them on your property. Like I, I knew a couple that I forget if they had, I think it was maybe just 10 acres, but it's possible it was 20. But about half of that, they would essentially raise cattle for a third party and they would show up and have their 20 or 30 calves and they had um, electric fence around, I think it was about a half acre sections. And every day those the, the cattle would have access to one of those sections and maybe two days. And then they would get moved to the next section, which had grass as a foot tall. So the, the cows would go crazy on that and start to eat it down. And then they'd, they'd go through at least a dozen of these before they got back to the original one. So there'd be like two weeks worth of uh, growth. And they would do that from spring to fall. And then the owner of those cattle would show up with their, their truck, pick them all up. And as payment, the, this couple was given one of those cows that would get butchered for them. And then they would, you know, here's your 300 pounds of meat. And overall, the amount of time spent wasn't that high, you know, essentially just moving the cows from one section to the next every day or two. Um, and that worked as far as, you know, the, the, they were paid with, with meat. In your case, you'd, you'd be paid in cash or something along those lines. Uh, would that be one of the options you'd consider? Because otherwise, if, if you're not... I don't think so. Apple, uh, the, the I don't think that's, well, that's within our ethics. Okay. Okay. But would you have other people in the community you're looking at that would would be doing that? Or is the, the goal that everybody that you would be bringing to that property would also be vegan or that you just wouldn't be raising animals for slaughter? I I don't know yet. I, uh, you know, in an optimum world, well, in, in an optimum world, everybody's vegan. Um, but, yeah, in our um, little uh, our little um, community, I don't think we would force anyone to be, um, to adhere to our dietary restrictions. But at the same time, I don't think, Allowing the use of our land for the for things that are against our ethics would be acceptable. Right. Okay. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to a slightly different angle of how many acres. Okay. And I'm gonna say um, I believe that a small adult who works full-time at growing their own food without importing anything can take a quarter of an acre and in time, like after 10 years, get that quarter of an acre to the point that it'll produce enough food to feed that person, that one person. Enormous amount of work. that, that, that Ongoing every year. At the same time, if you set up a single acre using permaculture techniques, um, I think I think with very little effort, it'll provide enough food for one person. And I, I keep thinking that one acre is about right for for the amount of food to feed one person 
in general using permaculture. Mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't give you any room for other things. Like, you know, do you need um, wood for not only uh, heat, but um, also possibly for building certain things or, I mean, wood's a very valuable material for all kinds of stuff. Um, and then uh, the other thing is, is that I think that if you had two acres per person, it would probably be even easier still, and it would not be as cramped. So now if you're going to talk about having a family, the question is, is well, how big of a family? Now, uh, so like, let's say, let's say that you've got four people, and then you've got possibly rather than two acres per person, which would be eight acres, it's more like seven or six acres. That should be quite comfortable for a family. Six or seven acres would be quite, quite comfortable to grow all the food without imports. Which I think is important to keep in mind because, of course, there are people that grew that have grown enough food to feed two or three people on a quarter of an acre, but they had a lot of imports. They brought in yeah. a, a lot of fertilizers, a lot of manures, a lot of this and that and the other thing. So, um, without imports, uh, so I kind of feel like an acre, yes. That's comfortable, more than an acre, a little more comfortable still. So, next thing, what are your neighbors like? And I, and I kind of feel like I've heard this story a lot, where all, 100% of your next-door neighbors are sprayers. And so... Yeah. Uh, and that it, was next on the list. And, it, and so then it's kind of like, all right, let's suppose you go out and you get your land... And you've decided that about seven acres is about right for you. And it's kind of like, how much buffer do you need on your property to try to buffer you from your neighbors? And, I mean, I think that for a lot of people, they're going out and buying their own land and growing their own food because the stuff that you can get at Whole Foods, it says organic but is it really? What is the story right. with that? And it's legally. <laughs> there's yeah, well, and maybe not, even not. not true. Organic according to Monsanto. Organic according to Monsanto, and at the same time, did did the grower take some shortcuts? You know, I I remember right. a story where a person was trying to do the right thing and. Uh, visit with their farmers like they wanted to know where their food came from and get an understanding of their values and it's like it sounded like the farmer had the right values and so they visited and it sounded like everything was just great and then they heard the farmer talking to somebody else about like um, yellow jackets and then it's like oh yeah nothing works except for raid you know <laughs> just poison those motherfuckers and and so then it turned out that also when it came to ornamentals, they had no problem using Roundup. And so I kind of feel like so many people are all about organic, except, you know, when they spray. 
So for the yeah. uh, the 362 days out of the year that they don't spray, they're organic. And then the few times that they do spray, well, you know, what are you going to do? But, hey, they're mostly organic. Yeah. And, and I've heard these same people say, oh, we're better than organic. But they spray. And it's kind of like, where the fuck do you think you're organic at all? And and so I kind of have to wonder when you go and you get the food, and it's kind of like, well, when you buy the food at Whole Foods, you know it was grown in a monocrop. Mm-hmm. And that's that's contrary to my values. I wish to have food that's grown in a polyculture. Okay, so... Um, you're going to buy this land with the idea of growing something better. You want to know the story of your food. It's important. Yes. And and then it's like, next thing you know, you're on this land and shit keeps happening and you find that you're cutting corners a lot. And part of it is your neighbor sprays and it, and then it, it 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 comes onto your land. Sometimes they have a little extra spray, so they just kind of shoot it out your way because there's a bunch of weeds on your land that they can see, and they can and they can spray it a good 25 feet off of their wagon, and they're like thinking to themselves, "I'm helping this guy out because he's clearly got a lot of weeds over there. I can oh, nice. I'm, I'm going to give him a little extra, do a little more for him." And that'll help make it so that there's a little less of his shit storm coming on to my monocrop. And yeah. so um, they're they're helping you and helping themselves at the same time by spraying your land for free, no charge, buddy. That's it. I'm helping you out. You owe me one now. And so, uh, let alone the overspray, which is just like you know they go to spray and a lot of it just comes. So now your stuff is tainted. And it's kind of like not, not only spray, but you can also have you know surface runner water runoff that is picking up those sprays and, and any other things that they're putting into the soil. Um, so you have to also worry about what the water is bringing onto your land from your neighbors as well. Well, yeah. Why is it that on the uphill side of my property, all I can grow is grass? Well, most of the herbicides are broadleaf herbicides. And yes. so they kill things, they kill everything except grass. And so um, it's like, okay, well, I had all these trees up there, but they're all dead now. And uh, I tried growing um, legumes, but they all died. All that grows is grass. That's all. Why? And it's exactly what Mark is saying. And so, but even more than that, um, if it's a persistent herbicide, you go and you, you know, cut, you do chop and drop. You're going to like, I'm going to go cut all that grass, and now I'm going to go lay the grass as a mulch over on my garden over here, and then your garden dies. And it's kind of like, I bought this property, I moved my family, it's now a pain in the ass to get to work. I did all of this so I could just know the story of my food. And it turns out I am now poisoning everything more than if I just kept buying shit at Whole Foods. And I think that this kind of story 
is the story, a big part of the story about how that guy sold that same property six times. Is that people would come and they would try to grow all this stuff and it wouldn't grow and they learned more than they ever wanted to learn about all this stuff. And then they just like, fuck it. And they walked away from the property and they just went back to work in town. And so, all right. The, the, the so, question so, is so how many thing. acres? We're talking about how many acres? And it's like, okay, a person's looking for seven acres. And what I'm trying to say is you might need a sacrifice buffer around your property. And how big of a sac- how big of a sacrifice buffer you might need might change from property to property. And so suddenly it's if, ninety if twenty acres. If there's nobody spraying there now, who's to say what's going to happen in five years down the road? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If you can have a buffer or like a hedgerow of some sort. Like you said, you still don't know in the future if somebody's going to show up and poison those plants um, with good intentions. But if you do have that hedgerow on a property you're looking at, then, one, you know that there isn't those broadly herbicides in play already. And, two, if anything is sprayed on occasion um, for dealing with whatever the neighbor's dealing with, that you do have that sort of a windbreak that will sort of limit how far onto your property that is going to travel. This podcast is continued in part two. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.